Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am so excited about this episode. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Travis Kemp organizational psychologist, author, educator, and company director who coaches top executives in the principles of behavioral science. Travis teaches, presents, and publishes in the fields of applied psychology, leadership, and education. He is a co-editor of the peer-reviewed journal, the International Coaching Psychology Review, a fellow at the Australian Institute of Management, and the Australian Human Resources Institute. Travis has the ability to get people thinking in ways they never thought possible, and he has had a significant impact on my coaching career. In this conversation, we discuss the costs of wanting to get it right all the time, the urge we have as big-hearted humans to be available to help others, why it's so hard to take care of ourselves, how to become a skilled helper, the power of the discomfort meter, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Travis Kemp. Trav, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for having me, Meg. It's been delightful already. I'm so excited to have this conversation because every time I sit down to have a conversation with you, I'm at the edge of my seat because I don't know quite where we're going to land and what adventure we're going to take. So let's start things off with hearing a little bit about you and your story to becoming so curious about people and bringing out best in themselves. Thinking back, I reckon my first experience of wanting and being interested in in helping people to learn and grow was when I was about 11 or 12 and I just joined, this is going to sound a bit bizarre, but I just joined our army cadet unit at my school because way back when I was a little kid, I really thought that I wanted to be a soldier. I guess it's like wanting to be a firefighter and stuff like that. But that's another story I'll get onto later. But yeah, so, and I just joined this uh, cadet unit and I'd become, after a year, uh, like a corporal. So I was suddenly at a very young age, I think I was at that stage, I must have been about 13 or 14, was responsible for 10 kids that were younger than me in the outdoors environment and doing things which were hazardous, which was quite interesting. And then I was responsible for teaching him stuff about that as well. And I, I very quickly discovered that I really enjoyed this notion of giving what was in my head or what I understood about something to somebody else so they could understand it and then they could pass it on and, and grow it and develop it themselves. So I guess from that point, everything in my whole adventure to this point has been tied to the thread of helping people to learn, grow or develop. And that's the consistency um, that runs through what, if you're looking at it from the outside, appears to be at times a very disjointed and all over the place type career. I find that so interesting to think that you had that spark when you were younger to understand something and then to share that knowledge with somebody else. Yeah, I think it was, a, I genuinely am curious about a whole bunch of stuff. Like I, I'm always asking myself, I wonder why that is or I wonder why that person does that or I wonder what their background is that has them see the world in that way. And it's just a, there's, there's a thousand questions that occur for me every day and very few answers which can be frustrating sometimes. <laughs> I'm laughing because we are so similar in that regard that we can get so curious about so many different things. And the beauty about being curious about so many different things is you start to join a few dots. You start to see a few patterns and see that things can be a little bit more predictable than what we once thought. Yeah, I think so. And and look, Likewise, it can be completely unpredictable in areas that we think are predictable, right? So we all know from a number of cognitive biases that we suffer from that we see patterns in things that don't exist. And that's the other, that's the other dilemma, right? Because, you know, you, you develop this skill set and people, enough people tell you, oh, wow, you're really good at doing that and you know a lot of stuff. And then you start to believe that. And then you start to see things that don't exist. And I think the importance in maintaining that curiosity is maintaining that position of never really knowing. And, and when you think you know, 
having that be a trigger for saying, well, you know, let's go looking for um, a perspective or data or or information that disproves what I think I know. Because, you know, we can never really be sure. But I know that's incredibly frustrating for a lot of people and inherently anxiety-producing for a lot of people as well. Because if you adopt that sort of headspace and live in that space, certainty doesn't exist. Predictability doesn't exist at one level. And that is an incredibly scary place for a lot of people. What coming to mind for me is uh, parenting. So before you go into parenthood, you think, oh, I know. I know some things. I've taught some kids. I can do this. And then you step into it and you quickly realise you don't know and there's so much that you don't know. And probably the more you go down the track, there are more things that you don't know. Oh, absolutely. And that, that, I think I find that quite hilarious because, you know, before I was a psychologist, I was a teacher, right? And so same thing. I thought, oh, I've taught kids before, you know, I know how I'm going to bring up my kids and I'm just going to employ all the things that I did in the classroom with my kids. And, of course, it doesn't work. Instantaneously, it just causes an enormous amount of grief. And then, um, you know, as a psychologist, people think that your kids are well-adjusted and well-behaved. And I jokingly say, you know, I'm married to a clinical psychologist, so, you know, our kids are perfectly well-adjusted, right? Not. (laughs) Yeah, because I suppose what we're highlighting here is this mess and magic of the human experience. It's it's such a rich tapestry. I know that's a cliche and it's such a, you know, an emergent tapestry. It, uh, but in a bizarre kind of way, as we see in nature at times, got a tendency to form patterns over time if you just let it do its thing. And if you accept and honour its inherent process in organising itself and we get over ourselves and our own importance in organising other stuff, then that's a really, I think it's a really nice place to be um, and it calms the anxiety associated with not knowing at one level. It's almost like a convergence. This is going to sound a bit bizarre, but the further and the more deeply I've explored science and identified with and become a scientist, the more convergence I start to see with what's not science. Again, I don't want to be interpreted the wrong way, but there's a there's an element of the human experience, which is not science, which we would call, you know, spirit for want of a better word. And I'm not saying religion. I'm not saying, you know, know, spiritual sort of beliefs necessarily. I'm saying there is a component that, you know, regardless of how much we know about humans is still a question mark. And that's something that you're so good at bringing to the world is being able to give people this sense of comfort and understanding and also nudging them towards that question mark. I'll I'll take that on board as feedback. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, because that's what I think the most brilliant educators, the most brilliant teachers, parents, carers, leaders, they can sit in this space of confidence in self and confidence in I don't know as well. Mm. You know, being able to hold those two tensions, I think, is quite a skill. I think you're very right. Um, I'm just sort of pausing and reflecting on how that's made challenging at times by others' expectations of you knowing and or uh, or behaving in certain ways. And that, that's one of the challenges that relates to, you know, parenting that you were saying before. You know, there's so many expectations of others on us and our performance as parents. It makes it really difficult to live up to those expectations. And why, why do you need to anyway? You know, we're... <laughs> We're perfectly imperfect and uh, it's, it's hard though. Perfectionism is, you know, a scourge. Certainly with my clients, even, you know, the most accomplished and the most successful people that I work with, there's always that back of their mind question mark about am I good enough and consistently strive towards being perfect, being right, being accurate, being, you know, getting the right decision in all situations, all the time, under all circumstances. And it's incredibly um, debilitating personally in a lot of ways. Mm. And it also sounds rather exhausting if you're constantly feeling like you have to get it right and have to be on it all the time. And what comes to mind for me is people who work in caring professionals, like the big-hearted people who are listening to this conversation, generally they're teachers, they're parents, they're passionate leaders, We can sometimes feel this urge to always be there for other people 24-7, like the idea of carer 
or helper or teacher is to always be available. And do you think that that's a bit of a challenge for us? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's very seductive. Being wanted and needed by other people is incredibly self-affirming in a lot of ways. It's it's like I'd like to be wanted and needed because if I'm wanted or needed, then I'll always be of relevance and I'll always be accepted, I'll always be included. And if I'm all those things, then I'll be safe, I'll be looked after. You know, these are deeply wired learnings and conditionings that we've worked on and reinforced over millennia. You know, this stuff doesn't go away. It's uh, it's deeply embedded and it's deeply embedded for a reason. And, you know, we, we can talk about old brain, new brain, and it's very cool and funky to talk about neuroscience now. And that, all very interesting stuff. It's all very true stuff, but it's also stuff in a lot of ways that we've learned uh, a long time ago and we've known for a long time. The way that our brains light up now because we've got technology to be able to, you know, draw pictures about how brains light up is all valuable. There's no question about that and we're learning much more about how that works. But the behavioural manifestation of what your brain's doing, we've known about forever. And we do know that we we get threatened when we feel like we're in the out group, that we're not accepted, that we're not included, that we're not valued. So it's it's kind of understandable to want to be accepted and want to be needed because it's uh, you know an adaptive and evolutionary function to stay alive mm, and so what's coming to mind for me is that person that they're the busy person they get things done and how functional that is from that human level to feel like well if I'm the one who gets everything done if you ask someone you know the busy person get it done that makes me feel good. That makes me feel really needed in the system. And almost like if I wasn't here, the system would fall apart. So there's that real identity in being so needed and so important. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. And one of the things that we forget about though is that those complex systems, those, those social structures designed to extract as much value from individuals as they can, right? And they don't otherwise do that. Known as, otherwise known as taking your blood. Is that when people yeah. say they'll take well, and, and squeeze look, you for what you got? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's not a malicious function. It's just an adaptive function. You know, it's designed to use the resource that it has available to it to sustain itself. So if you, if you pull that thread a little bit, you can see that systems will take as much as you want to give and more. And the system itself is not necessarily concerned about your well-being in that or your sustainability around that because the system has access to a whole bunch of other people that can do the same thing if you're not there doing that. And this is a really hard thing, I think, for people to understand. It's like it, it's nobody who is doing this. It's no group of people who are doing this. It's the nature of the system that allows this to happen and nurtures it. So making the realisation that if you want to be sustainable in terms of your own well-being and health and contribution over time, that you do need to hold bits back, that you need to invest in maintaining self to be able to continue to give. That's a really important realisation to make because when you're investing in self to recharge, for example, you're not investing in others. And if you're not investing in others, then lo and behold, you're not contributing, you're not going to be valued in, in that moment and you're liable, I guess, vulnerable to be chucked out of the group. Mm, and that's not where we want to be. We, we don't want to be vulnerable. Be, right? And we never, we never want to feel vulnerable, right? So one of the big challenges is um, this notion of desensitisation, leaning into what is uncomfortable and it's counterintuitive. Because you put your hand on the iron and it's hot, you burn yourself, you pull it away. Well, it's a really dumb idea to put it back on the iron. And yes, it is a dumb idea if you're going to leave your hand there and get third degree burns. But the way we respond to the immediacy of the pain can sometimes confuse the actual danger in the situation. If I'm feeling scared of something, I normally lean away from it. And sometimes I don't need to be leaning away from the things that scare me. In fact, Sometimes I need to be doing the opposite because what I'm perceiving as being scary is not actually a threat to me. So moving towards that is a good thing from a developmental perspective. That's a really hard idea for people to get their head around. Absolutely. Because it's unpleasant. So, 
so much is unpleasant in this conversation <laughs> because we're really actually stepping beyond our behaviour and beyond the identity and thinking about how is this functional for us in the short term, but also is it potentially detrimental for us in the long term? And what I really am picturing is when it comes to wellbeing, when it comes to carers, they all know, put the oxygen mask on before others. We all know those things. We've all seen the memes. We've seen the cartoons. We understand it. And yet it is so hard. It's like that touching the iron. It's like moving towards the fire. It makes so much sense. And yet we resist so deeply that notion of taking care of ourselves. So um, there are a number of different factors that play out in this. Um, where do you start? So it's it's absolutely normal, again, to, to when there's a problem, to, to want to move towards and solve it, right? It's the discomfort of sitting with the problem. And the tendency to, to want to do the right thing, and the right thing being what others perceive as being the right thing, is, is a very strong pull. So if... Um, I've been taught that giving is what we should always be doing. And now in this moment, I'm not giving, I'm just recharging or replenishing. Then if I'm being observed in that moment, then people are making a judgment about me not giving. You should be giving. So if we start shooting all over everybody and you just end up covered in should. Shooting all over <laughs> everyone's no good. <laughs> but, it, you know, if you look at it, um, I want to reflect in, in different sort of situations. So I'm a first responder. I'm a volunteer firefighter. We will attend a road crash rescue situation uh, quite often. It's very tempting when you approach a road crash scene to identify who is hurt and want to move towards helping who is hurt. And yet in those situations, the likelihood of me being hurt by doing that is very high. And to, to sit in that moment with witnessing somebody else suffering and in pain but making a decision that I have to look after myself first, otherwise I'm no good to anybody else, becomes an absolutely central and critical function to my decision-making. Now, it's really obvious in those situations. It doesn't make it any less easy sometimes because there's that pull towards wanting to help and there's that discipline associated with with not helping, if that makes sense. But it's so critical. And if you, you know, that's an extreme example, but it applies to, you know, helping as educators, as as helpers more broadly. You know, there are times when it's not the best thing to be helping somebody who's suffering. Sometimes I have to be very disciplined about standing back, about looking at the situation, about sitting with the discomfort and pain and suffering that I'm experiencing by watching you be in pain and suffering because unless I do that, I can't get a sense of what actually is going on, what is in the system that I can't see that I need to spend time looking for and, you know, what are the trips and hazards that if I don't sit back and look at it, I'm going to end up being in the same position or worse than the person I'm trying to help. I'm putting my hand up here because <laughs> um, I... I'm a reformed fixer. I still have that tendency because I'm completely human. However, particularly in my early teaching career, as soon as there was a student issue, boom, I would be in there. I'd be able to fix it, soothe it. You know, I didn't want any discomfort. I didn't want people to not be happy. I could just solve it. I tried to fix it. And what I learned through my study is every time I jumped in without pausing to see if it was the right move at the right time, I was robbing the students of an opportunity to learn, to yeah. grow, to work through challenge, and also robbing myself the opportunity to be able to tolerate discomfort. And that is a, just such a valuable learning. I, I mean, I can't emphasise just how valuable that learning is because some would argue, and there's a lot of solid evidence emerging at the moment around this, you know, our kids are not necessarily as resilient as what, they might have been in the past. They're not necessarily as adaptable and, and they don't have the ability to be able to bounce back as quickly as what they might need to be able to in an increasingly complex and unpredictable world. So, you know, we, we start to get, I get curious about that. How, how does that come to be? And, you know, when you start to reflect on it, um, when I talk to parents at times, I, I remind them it's, it's not their kid's job to manage their anxiety about being a parent. And there is anxiety about being a parent. You know, I have to sit back and I have to watch my kids 
adventure and take risk. And I have to sit back and watch them, you know, move into misadventure sometimes. So hurt themselves, whether that be physically by falling off a bike or whether it be emotionally by losing a friend. And I have to sit with them in their pain as they're going through it rather than prevent the pain from occurring in the first place. Because if I don't sit with them and help them make sense of that and work through it, they never develop the skill to be able to work in that space. So, you know, we are robbing our kids in our own need to avoid the pain and suffering of watching and sitting with their pain, robbing them of the opportunity to grow and learn. And that's really confronting, I think, for a lot of parents and educators. And, you know, when when I, I suggest that at times, it gets a really not violent, but very intense response because it's confronting to think about that. Oh, and it's so uncomfortable. Like it's so hard for a lot of us to be with that discomfort of sadness, frustration, anger, and it's about building up our tolerance for being with this discomfort. Yeah, well, and, and I think you're right. I think it's very, it's, it's something that we've learned much more about even over the last sort of 20 or 30 years. So, you know, previous generations' defence, they, they were just doing, like we all do, the best that they possibly can based on what evidence we have now. If you and I have another conversation in 30 years' time, I might be arguing 180 degrees from where I'm arguing now because that's a part of this process. Is do the best that you can do with what information and what resource you have in the moment. Something that is always in my mind is when we're talking about schools and education, we have come from an origin of fear of power over and if you do the wrong thing, there's a physical punishment. So we're really in different territory now and we're slowly working towards more that power with seeing people as human, us being human and having this strength to know when to lean in and when to lean out because sometimes, as we've highlighted in this conversation, we're leaning in because we're scared of what may happen. Like the unknown is too scary, too uncertain, and so we pull in and get tighter. Absolutely. And and the, the temptation making that realisation and starting down this path of leaning in is that then you start to expect yourself to be able to lean into all discomfort every time in exactly the same way. And if you're not, then you're copping out. It's like that's equally ridiculous, right? Because guess what? There's times when I will say to my kids, don't do that because I don't want you to get hurt. Now, you know, this is not a black or white thing. This is a continuum, right? Absolutely, because, Trav, <laughs> there's never a black and white thing with you. I know everything is on a continuum. And people um, listening, you'll soon realise that Trav will never tidy things up with a bow. There's always a continuum <laughs> and there's always grey area. But it is so true because every situation requires a different tact. And that's why I love this idea of becoming more skilled in our helping more skilled in our caring. So we're doing it in a more conscious way, not just to avoid discomfort. Yeah, and I think that skill builds over time. You know, you layer it with every experience that you have. You layer it with every discomfort that you lean into. You know, remember that growth is, I think we sell, we have in the past, I can remember an, an incredibly intense phase to my development as a teacher was consumed by positivity. So all feedback needed to be completely positive in every sense. And there was no room for corrective or negative feedback. Now, you know, I think we've grown past that now. We're starting to understand a little bit more fully, but um, really bad things happen. You know, <laughs> shitty things just surfaced in life. You know, that's, that's the way it is. You know, some days I'm at my best and some days I'm at my worst. And, you know, when I'm at my worst, I'm, I'm not proud of that. Even sitting with the discomfort and acceptance of me not being what I would like to be or espouse to be all the time is an example of leaning into this discomfort. And when I do that, you know, that's the, that's the, the area that we can grow into. The expectation is that it's going to be comfortable to learn and it's always happy to learn and it's always joyful to learn and it's always having fun to learn. I think we're doing ourselves a disservice because there's no evidence for that. Whenever I have to move from where I am to somewhere else, it requires energy. And if I'm where I'm moving to, I'm unfamiliar with or it's uncomfortable. 
then the discomfort associated that needs to be the the meter that I use, um, not the comfort meter in regards to my learning. And I think that's a really interesting idea that I try to encourage people to to build in their minds. You know, if you're going to have a dashboard about how you're travelling, have a bloody great discomfort meter on the dashboard and make sure that that's also in the green because if if you're not uncomfortable, sometimes you're not growing. Flip side, if you're uncomfortable all the time, then that's not going to be a good place to be either because that is just degenerative to your, you know, your, your energy and your, your well-being if you're perpetually in a state of discomfort. I know you're going to hate this, but it comes back to this seesaw. You know, you're balancing it, and balance is not a static state. It's a dynamic state of disequilibrium that I'm constantly required to move to maintain. And it's so important when we're thinking about our students, where's their discomfort? You know, how are we putting them in a place where they can feel comfort, but also that challenge, that sense of discomfort? I remember talking to a psychologist years ago and he said, Meg, we're going to get to a point where we're going to be putting in consciously hurdles, tasks that are hard, where they're going to fail on purpose because we've gone so far the other way. This changes all the time. I think, again, in our quest for trying to nail things down to a level of replicable predictability all the time, we lose the fact that, you know, we're not dealing with innate objects in humans. We're dealing with objects and entities that are constantly shifting and changing. So what, you know, if you're in a teaching setting, what a kid can cope with and how much they can lean into and what they can lean into will change on a daily basis. And what they could do yesterday, they won't be able to do today. And you won't know why, right? Because you don't have perfect vision of their whole life. And, I'm just yeah. laughing because I'm remembering trying to teach senior students before they're formal. It's like it's just not going to happen. Exactly. They're more interested in drawing their dresses than it's, listening. It's just not going to happen. That's right. It's spot on. And what's important to them in that moment? It's like, well, if if they fail at their formal, they if they get the wrong dress or they get a judgment that they weren't at their best, then that leaves a mark forever. Absolutely. So they're not caring about PE and science in that moment. Not a stuff. <laughs> and then learning to be able to be with that, to be with this humanness. And there's also a tension, isn't there? Because in schools, you know, essentially they are a business in the sense that there's scores, there's brochures to be made, we want to get students in. And so there's a tension of trying to produce something that we can put our stamp on, also trying to create an environment where this humanness can be cultivated. I know it's uncomfortable for a lot of educators to see schools as businesses. And there's a lot of reasons why you would want to reject that notion. If you sort of shift the, the reflective space a little bit to it, its function requires capital and it requires money, right? <laughs> and that's got to come from somewhere. Otherwise, you can't do the work that you do. So I think, again, we're getting better at seeing social enterprises as not necessarily for profit or for growth and success, perpetual growth and success type businesses, but Nevertheless, enterprise plays a part in the way that I structure them and manage them. And again, they can live you know, happily with each other. You don't have to be rejecting one notion or denying one reality because of a, a philosophical belief. You know, it's just acceptance that there are complexities here and we need to attend to all the elements of it. Otherwise, we won't be able to keep doing the work that we do. Absolutely. And we want to create environments where staff, students, families, the wider community feel like they have the opportunity to thrive, to take that curiosity, to lean into discomfort, and that's safe and exciting. And, and again, the flip side is that maybe we want to create environments where people feel like they can flounder and be okay floundering as well. You know? Absolutely. And be safe to do that and not have people, you know, either reject them for floundering, judge them for floundering, or not be present and supportive while they're floundering. Well, talking about floundering, there's a lot of carers out there that are currently floundering, and they've, so they've listened to this, they're understanding this, and they know, right, I've got to take care of myself. And what I've noticed is the next step is I don't know how. They're so in tune with what students need, what colleagues need, kids need. Everyone around them, they can sense what they need and yet yeah. when it comes to themselves, they draw a blank. I think there's a tendency to, when, when I say I've got to look after myself, there's a tendency to go looking for things that I need to now start doing to look after myself, which is another list of things that I need to do and it adds to the list of things that I haven't done yet that I need to do. So it gets overwhelming really quickly. I think it's important sometimes to remember that looking after yourself is as much about 
choosing the things that you don't do anymore, that you stop doing, than the things that you start doing. And if you're going to stop doing things, that means letting go. Letting go is such a powerful metaphor at so many levels, you know. Um, when I was an outdoor ed teacher, uh, I used to teach kids rock climbing. You know, there was always the point where they get to where they get completely freaked out. They start to lactate. They can't hold onto the rock face anymore. And, of course, regardless of the, you know, bomb-proof safety built into the system, they think they're going to die if they let go of that rock face, right? And so they just keep gripping harder and harder and harder. And ironically, the harder they grip, the more likely they're going to fall off, right? <laughs> and so you, you say, just loosen your grip. And you go, but I can't lose all my grip because if I lose my grip, I'm going to let go. So this, it's a, it's a very simple sort of headspace, but very difficult to execute on. Like a lot of growth and development sort of notions, it's simple when you talk about it, but the actual act of doing it is bloody hard. And so, you know, letting go is a really powerful metaphor in these sort of examples. So what are you hanging on to that you must be? What are the stories that you hang on to about, you know, the way that um, you are and what you need to be doing, the way that you need to be contributing, what you need to be, you know, building on on a daily basis? What can you afford to loosen your grip on? So even if you take a step towards it, don't let go necessarily immediately, but just, you know, can you loosen your grip on that? So can I give myself permission to not be at my best in every lesson every day? Can I give myself permission to not be busy when I don't necessarily urgently need to be busy? Can I give myself permission to sit around and watch three episodes of a series on Netflix and feel like that's not being lazy? You can, you can think of a thousand stories that you have in your head about how you should be versus how you're acting at the moment and how they don't match up. But can you give yourself permission to just not be perfect? That's a hard one, right? It's so hard and there's a part of me that's so excited by that because the educators that I've worked with, once they've given themselves permission and been in that environment long enough through repeated action to see the changes in them, But there's also something that sneaks up. Once we've given ourselves permission, the next thing I notice is we feel a bit guilty then. So we've decided, yes, we're going to lie on the couch and we've told ourselves it's not lazy, I'm I'm exhausted, I'm having a rest, and then the next thing is guilt. So can you explain that? (laughs) Absolutely, because that's just another gift that keeps giving, right? This is a a progressive process, right? Because you do do that and you go, I'm so proud of myself that I'm looking after myself today. I'm just having downtimes. I've got my huggies on and I'm just sitting around. When I could be doing something else, I should be doing something else. I've got this big long list of things that I need to be doing and I'm not going to do those things today. And then that little voice kicks in saying, you know, you really should be doing that to-do list. And then it gets louder and louder and louder. And for some people it gets so loud they just say, I can't do it, I'm going to get up and do it, right? But the voice itself, the guilt voice itself, is another opportunity to lean into what's uncomfortable. Can you notice that voice and sit with it? and let it do its thing relentlessly at times and acknowledge the fact that it is just a voice and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to behave consistently with what it's telling you. Can you sit in that moment of discomfort of knowing that this voice is not necessarily going to stop immediately, it's going to keep hammering me, to sit there and let it hammer all over me and not do what it's asking me to do? Now, that's a really interesting practice, right? And the other you know, the metaphor that sometimes is valuable for people is if you've ever had a trigger point massage, for example, or you've sort of had somebody hit a sore spot in a muscle somewhere, it's pretty painful and you kind of want to get away from it and you want it to stop immediately. Your massage therapist quite often will say, just breathe into the pain and the discomfort of it. And they'll just hold that position on a muscle. And you think this pain is never going to go away. It's the worst pain I've ever felt. And lo and behold, if I can just be disciplined enough to sit in the discomfort of that for 30 or 40 seconds, then my experience of the pain starts to change. In effect, the pain changes. It dissipates. But it's the tendency to jerk ourselves away from the immediacy and intensity of the discomfort that robs us of the opportunity to be able to sit with the pain and allow it to dissipate and to change the way that we experience it by sitting with it. So the discipline, and that's a very sexy word to use these days, but the discipline associated with the sitting in and with the discomfort is, I think, a really important focus for helpers. It's not going to be pleasant to not help. Mm, That is such an important point. It is not going to be pleasant 
to not help. And I know for myself, something that I've worked hard on, and it sounds funny even saying that I've worked hard on it, but to get to a point where I can read for pleasure at night. No, for a long time, I had this story or this rule that why would you read for pleasure when you've got another book to read, you know, another academic journal to thing, or just something else you could be reading? Why read for pleasure? And it actually took me a lot of discipline and consistency, all of those nasty words that people don't like, to get to a point to now I just cannot wait to get into bed and read that book. But initially it felt so uncomfortable because my voice is saying there's something else you should be reading. And then I feel guilty. And then eventually getting to the point now where I just can't wait. I absolutely love it. But it's a practice. <laughs> it's an excellent practice, right? And it's great that you're enjoying reading. I personally, and this is going to sound strange a lot, but I don't actually like reading a whole lot, to be honest. The, the experience of reading, it always takes a lot of effort for me. And uh, I would rather listen to something or watch something than read something. But there's, you know, it's interesting that the expectation that many would have of somebody like me in doing what I do is that I enjoy reading and I should enjoy reading. Well, kind of, you know, it's always laboured. <laughs> Absolutely. So. And it's commissioned for everybody listening that there are probably parts of your job parts of your role in life that are hard work yeah, and absolutely. we don't like that's, them. <laughs> I think it's, a, it's an excellent point, right, and really well-timed because, again, we think that if we're following our passion because, you know, you can get all, all tied up in, oh, this person is absolutely all together because they're following their passion and it's always been consistent and this is, well, guess what, you know, my passion sucks sometimes. You know, it's really unpleasant trying to follow it. There's days when I think I just don't want to be doing what I do today. I want to just go and do something else. <laughs> and, I get it. <laughs> it's like, and, and sometimes you just have to suck that up, right? Absolutely. And so maybe for people listening, taking care of themselves, they may just have to do it. <laughs> maybe you have to suck up the discomfort and the guilt that comes with it and just do it again and again and again until you get to a point where it may feel good. It may, and it may never feel. Or may not. <laughs> this I is the funny thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but if you look at the the value that it adds, that that's a different point, right? Because if if you start to see that over time, if you do invest in that, the waves that we experience start to change in some sort of way. Um, I'm able to n- not crash as far as I crashed before. I'm able to maintain a level of performance. It might not have been at the dizzy heights of peakness that I used to get, but I can do it consistently for a longer period of time now. And this is the confusion that we have about performance and this notion of sustainable performance. You know, people interpret that as being I have to perform at my absolute peak constantly all the time. Performance doesn't work that way. You know, working with elite-level athletes, they perform for a very short amount of time in comparison to how much time they spend training and more to the point now, resting and recovering. So many of the people who are carers, I look at them as elite athletes. However, they're in the game five days a week and then probably it's in their mind seven days a week and not allowing themselves that permission to rest, to recover. How important do you think rest and recovery is for us? It's vitally important as helpers, and um, but it's, it's violently resisted because it's downtime. You know, the work that I do with senior executives, for example, requires an enormous amount of focus and attention and presence. You need to be, there's no room for not being absolutely present in the conversation. And that takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of, you know, investment in effort, if that makes sense, at one level. It's draining on the, on the fuel tank. And so I can't do a lot of those sessions in a week. I can't do seven, eight sessions a day, which is a lot of you know, my psychologist colleagues do with their clients and expect that I'm going to be able to add as much value, you know, seventh or eighth session as I do on the first. It just doesn't work that way. Imagine if we gave ourselves a bit more space because when we give ourselves space, I guess it's an opportunity to calibrate, to process. When we give space, we're probably going to make better decisions moving forward, how we interact with other people. Yeah, so I know you. this will resonate with you being an ex but we used to have this uh, motor skill acquisition mantra that we used to pump out all the time, space equals time equals good technique. And translated in team invasion sports, the more space that I can create around myself, 
Uh, the more time that I've got to be able to review the display and make a decision, the better that I'll be able to execute on the technique. So I think the same holds for, you know, helpers. Better that I can manage the time and space around myself, the better that I'm going to be able to help. And so how can people start to work toward this idea of becoming a more skilled helper? Yeah, so the first thing is well, recognising your own patterns, right, because we all have our own unique sort of patterns around this. Introspection, reflecting on why I do what I do and being brutally honest about that. You know, I help, for example, because it's easier to help other people than it is to help myself. I help because when I help people, they like me and I like to be liked. I help because I don't like the thought of of not helping. You know, I've got a voice that says I should always help. Whatever it is for you, you know, and we all have a unique story around this. Reflect on and really sit with the story that you're telling yourself about what it means to be a helper and why you help. Because until you get clear on what's driving you in the direction of helping, it's really difficult to look after yourself. So that, I would say, was a, is the first step. Once you look, take a long, hard look in that mirror and you accept the fact that what you see some days is not what you want to see, that you don't like what you see sometimes, then sitting with the bits that you don't like and the discomfort of that and allowing that to become less sensitive just by nature of sitting with it, starting to see it as a, a part in a much bigger whole, then that's the next step. And, and look, this is not I do this on Monday and then I do that on Tuesday and then Wednesday everything's fixed. This is an ongoing thing. There's days when I look at myself in the mirror and I don't like what I'm seeing on that day. Um, there's days that it's the opposite. So just recognising that, you know, this is a, an iterative process. It's an emergent process. It's not a linear process. So it's not an immediate fix. And, again, people, the self-help industry has done us a disservice because in a lot of cases it's do these five things and your life will be wonderful. That's not the truth. I've got to tell people that's not going to be how this works, right? <laughs> Definitely not. We can't just be like, tick, discomfort, nailed it. <laughs> Rest, nailed it. Guilt-free, nailed yeah. it. <laughs> My life is wonderful. So, so, so just start with that and then take breaks from that. You know, in doing that, except the, sometimes you're not going to do that. Sometimes you're going to do what feels good, not necessarily what makes you happy. And there's two different things. What feels good for me sometimes is binging on cheesecake. I really like cheesecake. <laughs> does it make me happy? No, it doesn't make me happy because I know that it's not good for me to binge on cheesecake constantly. But you know what? If I'm going to binge on cheesecake, I'm going to be present, I'm going to binge on cheesecake, and then I'll move on after that, right? So that's really bringing that presence to what we're doing is not necessarily good or bad. It's thinking about the stories we're telling ourselves and then making that conscious choice moving forward. Do I want to do that again? Or maybe can I tweak it? Is it helpful or is it maybe harmful? You know, again, you know, is it helpful? Well, it depends on what how you look at it, right? It, has it provided a respite? Has it given me an opportunity to breathe? Has it given me a break? Yes. Okay, well, then maybe that's okay. You know, Absolutely. You give yourself a break. You can have a cheat day, you know. You can have a bad day. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've, I've really found that over the time, the more I give myself permission to just have a crappy day, it just passes. It, Correct. Goes. It's a really interesting phenomenon, isn't it? The, <laughs> so, the less if the less you resist it, you know, it, it loses its energy to try and get your attention. You know, if you're not paying attention to it, it's the same as a kid, right? If a kid's arcing up, it's very tempting to focus on their behaviour that is abhorrent. Extinction is one hundred and one says just ignore it and see what happens. You know, and a lot of the times, if you ignore it, it goes away. I did chuckle to myself a few weeks ago. I woke up and like ah. Today's going to be a bit of a crappy day. I'll give myself a bit of a day off. And then by lunchtime, I was feeling pretty good. I was like, oh, it was only half day. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a moving feast, right? If you only need half day, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. And, And I suppose, you know, something that I've heard you say lots of times, Travis, is when people are thinking about change, they want change to be permanent and perfect. So can we just challenge that idea? Yeah, there's no evidence for that at all. That's not how the way change works, right? In fact, the way change works is that I have a half-assed idea and then that turns around in my head for a long time and then eventually I'll get a bit of motivation or I won't. But if I do, I'll go and try something different. And my expectation is the first time I I try it, it's going to be perfect and everything will be fixed immediately. And if it's not, 
then obviously that was the wrong change to make, so I'm not going to do that again. That's all irrational. I just want to remind people that we believe very strongly that we're irrational, but there is no evidence in the research and scientific literature at all ever that suggests that humans are rational. In fact, it's the opposite, right? How <laughs> many emotional. biases do we have? How many biases do we have again? 188 plus and counting. So we're discovering even more, you know. But there's a lot of them, right? We're emotional beings as much as we're biological beings. Uh, and we can learn to be more rational, but to do that, we, have, we need to start from understanding our irrationality and how that shows up and where that comes from. So um, the expectation that you know, if I decide to change, I'm going to be able to do that perfectly from day one and nail it forever, that's just crazy. You know, what actually happens is I'll try something, bits of it might work, bits of it won't. I'll get bored with the change. I'll go back to what I was before because guess what? This is uncomfortable and I don't like it. And so your brain starts saying, you know, you're much happier when you are not making this change. Why don't you go back to not making that change again? And you go, that's a good idea. I'll go back to that. Back to the cheesecake. <laughs> back to the cheesecake, right? And then, you know, it might work for, you know, you might be happy there for another five years and then it might, it might even be 10 years. could be three minutes. Who knows? <laughs> but then you'll say, hang on a tick. Okay, let's just get out there again. Let's give it another crack because I'm really not absolutely happy with where I'm at and I know it's not really where I want to be, so I want to move somewhere else. Let's try this again. And then over time, you know, we, we travel through that cycle and it's a subtle thing sometimes. It's like, you know, it's very hard to watch a rose grow. you kind of got to take it in bites day by day and you can notice change. But if you're constantly sitting there watching it, you're not going to see anything move. Change can be like that. You know, stop watching it. Just do it. Come back to it. Notice what's moved, what hasn't moved and be patient and, and more, most importantly, be compassionate towards yourself because you're not going to get it right and you're not going to get it perfect. Oh, Trav, you have given us so much to think about. <laughs> Every time I leave a conversation with you, my head is absolutely spinning and I get the opportunity to think about things in new ways. So I'd love to wrap up this conversation with an invitation for you to complete four sentences. Are you up for it? I'll, I'll give it a crack. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I am inspired by... I'm inspired by humans leaning in to the stuff that is really hard for them to lean into and, and gives me a sense of hope. I know it's very tempting at various points in time, especially at the moment, to lose hope in humanity and um, depending on, you know, what your algorithm for your news feed is doing to you through your social media at any given point in time, but that's another podcast, um, <laughs> will determine how I'm feeling about that. But I am... I love watching humanity grapple with some really big problems at the moment and seeing amazing average people are in terms of the way they grapple with their lives every day. It's just that's that's what inspires. When life feels hard? Um, <laughs> Cheesecake. <laughs> Cheesecake. <laughs> so I, I love to say if you go through help, keep going, you know, um, what that means is, you know, if it's hard, keep pushing, lean, keep leaning in. You know, it's not going to be forever. And one of the most powerful things to remember is that, and this is a, a direct quote from a Buddhist nun that I have an enormous amount of respect for called Pema Chodron. She refers to a poem written by uh, Rieke, I think off the top of my head. But one of the lines in that poem was, no feeling is final. And this notion of, you know, when I'm consumed by an emotion or a feeling, it feels like it's going to be like that forever, but it won't last. It's a phase. So this notion of a feel, if it's feeling hard, sit with the hardness of it because it won't stay that way. It'll soften over time. You may get a half day. <laughs> you get a half every <laughs> day. And underrated skill is? Vulnerability and uh, maybe listening. I don't know. I think it's really hard to be stupid and tell people about that, not know stuff, you know, be ignorant or be naive, you know. People have often called me naive. It's like, that's cool. And I am looking forward to. Oh, to this, is, this is not meant to sound morbid, but I, the, the biggest curiosity that exists for humans is what happens when we're not humans anymore. What happens at that point when we die? That's an enormous curiosity that I have. And there's some like Ray Kurzweil, who's a renowned futurist, to suggest that, you know, it might be possible to actually know the answer to what is death for humans within the next 50 years. That's a pretty interesting thought. 
because immediately I go to, well, if we know what is on the other side, for want of a better term, how does that change the way we live our lives and what hum- the human experience actually is and what its purpose is? I love thinking about that, although it's a, it's a deep burrow that sometimes it's hard to get out of. <laughs> Well, that's an answer I wasn't expecting. Trav, thank you so much for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. It's been a delight and a challenge as always. Thank you for having me. See you later. See ya. Every time I have a conversation with Travis, I learn more about myself and others. And guaranteed, I walk away with more questions than the questions I had walking into the conversation. And it's worth really thinking about it. Think about the ways that you're helping yourself. Thinking about the ways that you're helping others. And is it really helpful? Is it skillful helping? Or potentially, are you doing too much for others and not enough for yourself? Before you go, I would like to invite you to stop and take a moment to think about the two following questions. Number one, from this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? And number two, What is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to support your well-being? If this conversation has struck a chord with you, you will love the Energy by Design program. Energy by Design is a 10-week well-being program for big-hearted humans that want to experience more energy, clarity, and depth in their lives. If you're learning for a space to connect, share, laugh, and learn with other big-hearted humans, this is a program for you. The next round of Energy by Design kicks off Monday, the 31st of January, and I cannot wait. I am so excited to get started. I would love to hear from you. What are your pearls? What are you learning from listening to these conversations? Reach out and let me know via Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and share with your family, friends, and colleagues. Imagine what the world would be like if we all had these skills to feel good, function well, and relate better. This is a world that I'm looking forward to being in. All of the links from this episode will be in the show notes. Let's get lucky you've got the professional mic because you're the professional host. Are you sure it's switched on now? Okay. Now it's switched on. I'll take a moment of silence so then I can know when it starts. So if you're going to run a podcast, the most important thing to do is switch on record, right? (laughs) Otherwise you don't have any content. I know. That would be, and then I would be scrambling. Okay. Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing wellbeing education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.